Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. See, immediately I feel joy to be sitting here today with David Bedrick. Mm. I'm holding his book in my hands, his latest book, Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. David Bedrick, J.D., Diploma, P.W., is a faculty member of the Process Work Institute and spent eight years on the faculty of the University of Phoenix. He speaks on the topics of shame, weight loss, social injustice, and alternative psychological paradigms. He is the author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, and he blogs for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post, and counsels people internationally. Welcome, David. Mm, Thank you. It's a pleasure to sit with you. My face has got this big grin on it. People can't see just looking at you and sitting here. Well, mm. wonderful. Mine mm. too. So I want to know if you plan this book to uh, to come out just after mm. the election, reminding people, revisioning activism. Mm. Did you do this on purpose? <laughs> on purpose. That's a great... <laughs> consciously on purpose? No. <laughs> I, I started writing more and more about activism about three and a half years ago and started publishing essays. And um, then I thought I should take some of these essays and put them together in a book. And I had a title, which was about psychology. I think it was Psychology 2.0, or I can't remember the original title. And I had a book cover made for that. I had essays made for that. And I started to write the introduction to set up those essays. And after seven or eight months, I realized those essays didn't work. At least many of them didn't work. And I tossed those out, and I thought, I'm really wanting to write about activism. I'm wanting to write about racism and anti-Semitism and the failures of psychology socially, in terms of social justice. So I started writing more essays. I paid for a book cover, had to throw that one out, and um, dreamt of a new title, a new orientation. So it took me about two and a half years to write the essays. It took me 15 minute, 15 months to write the introduction before I realized what I was really trying to write and then writing the introduction, rewriting what the book was about, etc. No idea that the inauguration was going to be five days after. Wow. Yeah. So in a certain sense, it's the book that told you what it wanted to be written about. Mm -hmm. And so... What exactly did this book urge you to talk about? (laughs) It urged me to talk about what I now call, only since the book was written, psychological activism, because of psychology and activism. Mm -hmm. It urged me to talk about depth psychology, the depth psychology's role in social justice. And that means for me, depth psychology implies that there's a shadow There's something deep behind what the light is on. The light is on some aspect of the culture, but not on others. If it's on a white aspect of the culture, then darker-skinned people are going to be in the culture. If it's on clean living, then homeless and addicts are going to be in the shadows of the culture. So my depth psychology point of view said, many things get rendered into the shadows. I should shine a light on that. So that's what I kept on trying to do. So everything I write about has that view. So I don't write about racism per se, 
meaning here's where racism exists. Let me prove that to you. Let me give you statistics about law enforcement, which I can show you, or statistics about employment, which I can show you. But I'm writing about how that becomes put in the shadow. How come we're not aware of that? How come people say that doesn't exist? How come people dismiss that reality and render that reality in the shadows, meaning I'm invisible, not me, it's invisible to most people that that's happening. How come that, that's a psychological orientation that I want to take. So the book keeps on looking at issues like that, saying, how come we don't notice that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see, when you you say shadow, the uh, greatest form of shadow that uh, I know is toxic shame. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of the... um, the things that we feel ashamed of that we do come from mm-hmm. our own shame. Yeah. And so, and the, the amazing thing about shame, about toxic shame, is that mm-hmm. if it's brought to the surface, it will dissipate. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to talk about, maybe if you see that uh, shame is becoming apparent on a, on a social level at this point. And it's mm-hmm. maybe a two-part question. And if, if that might be so, how do we as activists dance with our own shame, which can never be totally healed? I'm just appreciating the question yeah. about shame because people don't talk about it. That's and they so. don't talk about it in terms of social justice. They do talk about individuals being shamed. I was shamed by, or I feel shame. But they don't talk about the cultural aspects, the social aspects. The social aspects are in the shadow. We don't see the shame, mm-hmm. and we don't see the shaming, the violence of that. So I'll see if I can point that out. Let me give kind of a, a story, the paradigm of shame. So, so there's, let's say there's a child hurt by an adult, let's say a parent. We would call that abused. Let's say it's a physical thing. A parent can hit that child punch that child, and that child can't defend themselves. There's a power difference that has to exist in the paradigm and an inability to defend themselves. If a person can defend themselves, it's a fight, but it's not necessarily abuse, even if people are hurt. The psychological problem doesn't happen yet. I'll explain that in a second. So, bam, the child gets hurt. That's an injury. Minor, put an ice pack on. Major, take them to the hospital. Something bad could have happened, could take a life. But then how that's witnessed, who sees that and who doesn't, that's what creates the shame. And and that witness that creates the shame does one of three things. They dismiss it. It's not a big deal. They deny it. That didn't really happen. You're making that up. Or they blame the victim. Why did you do things that caused that? Somehow you were the cause of that particular thing. Dismissal, denial, blaming the victim. What that does is it takes the wound. That child has a wound, a bruise on the arm. Let's say they got hit. And it wraps it in a bandage. And the bandage is toxic now. You call it toxic shame. So that person no longer thinks clearly about themselves. They don't trust themselves anymore. Because I'm like, is my perceptions right? People come to me in my therapy office. Am I making this up? Am I okay? How come I'm always scared? What's wrong with me? Why do I get this way? How come I get angry sometimes? They're asking a whole bunch of questions that imply something's wrong with them. Not implying that somebody hurt them and that somebody dismissed that. That whole, that thing that wraps itself around, that making like a snake motion, it wraps itself around the psyche and I no longer believe my experience. A person who doesn't believe their experience, that's a disempowered human being, a disempowered political agent. You can hurt me. I won't know I'm being hurt. You can be dangerous. I don't know that you're dangerous. That's a dangerous scene to be in. Yeah. Important. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. narrowing down on this, mm-hmm. perhaps there's a great element of shame. I mean, since your book came out on the 13th of January... I think it's really important because we need all the we need all the remembering and the creative energy we can as activists. So let's say perhaps that 
the people who voted for Trump in a certain way, they voted out of shame of not being able to maintain their families mm -hmm. and many, many other things I'm not minimizing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then the activists, the people who didn't vote or who didn't support this change, they feel shame because they can't believe mm -hmm. that this shame is happening. Mm -hmm. How can we work with that? Mm -hmm. How can... How can shame be turned into the right use of power? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to take that paradigm I was describing of the person who dismissed or denied that experience. Now we need the opposite. We need to bear witness. That's my framework. I say, now I have to bear witness. And if you are a person who can't support their family, there's a certain injury that's happening to you. By the way, people look at you, maybe by an institution that's not appreciating you, maybe by, an organ maybe by people who are supporting large organizations and losing your job. There's an assault that's happening to you. It's not your fault, so to speak, that you're losing that job. There's an assault. And if I just look at you as a person who's not up to it, something's wrong with you, has some attitude towards you losing that job that looks at you like, what's wrong with you that this would happen? Or it's not such a big deal, get over it. If I'm looking at you in that way, then I add shame to that situation. I have to start to see that situation clearly, witness it not by denial and dismissal and blame, say, tell me about it. What happened? Who hurt you, so to speak? What systems hurt you? Where's the injury? What's it like to be injured like you are? In that situation, that can then unwrap that particular shame. So I have to do that with the activists, whoever it is. I have to bear witness to people's actual experiences. That means individuals, but then groups. Right? We know certain groups, black women for a long time, still around with the welfare queen notion. This is a this is a blaming the reason why a blaming of that particular person. You're in a less affluent situation. And what I see is a person abusing a system. I don't see a person abused by the system. I'm blaming you. I'm looking at you in a certain way. That brings a kind of shame to an entire group of people. Anyway, we know that's, that's what I'm saying. Most recently, I'm, I'm saying one more thing. Is it, should I? Yeah. Just please go Yeah. On. Most recently, what's been on my mind, and I'm sure you're aware of it, yes. is that um, Holocaust Remembrance Day was this past week. Mm -hmm. Was that Monday? My brain is now forgetting. Yeah, and, then, <laughs> and then the White House, Trump, issues a statement that eliminates the word Jew or Jewish or anti-Semitism. So there's no mention now of those words. He actually was given, the, the data is out now, he was given something by the State Department that had the word Jews in, Jew in it. But he says, no, let's leave that out. So now I've erased Jew from Holocaust. How could you have a Holocaust and not have the word Jew? We all know Jew belongs in that. Not the only victims of the Holocaust. Right. But nonetheless, can you imagine a Holocaust without thinking of Jews? No, you can't, unless somebody erases that, dismisses, erases, takes that out of the scene. Now that says, I'm not going to bear witness to the injury that happened, the specific injury. That brings a shame to the Jewish psyche. Now I have to sit here as a Jewish man and Jewish sister and say, don't let that in. Let me use the word Jew four more times in this interview. So that word Jew is up there now because it's threatening to be erased. Then we'll start to walk around thinking, oh yeah, there was this, I feel really terrible sometimes, David. I'm a Jewish client, we'll come here. I go through all these different experiences, but I have no sense that it's related to the fact of being Jewish because the Jewishness is erased. I don't think I'm experiencing a trauma Related to my culture, I think I'm a screwed up human being. That's the shame. Mm -hmm. I'm a screwed mm -hmm. up human being. I'm not a person experiencing an injury right. that's resonating in my psyche. Right. I'm a screwed up. How come I had headaches this week? A Jewish person will say. Another one will say, I had so much more violence in my family this week. Another person will say, I've been so depressed this week. How come that person is not relating it to the lack of the word Jew in the Holocaust Remembrance Statement? It is related. Shame took away our sense of what's happening. Now, mm -hmm. this line, mm -hmm. this, this important line 
between being empowered by remembrance and speaking of what of how you've been harmed and not acting as a victim mm. that I mean in that line for me lays mm. dignity mm. in that and music between those notes lays my dignity that is, how, that is gorgeous right, I'm sorry it's just yeah, such yeah. a beautiful statement yeah. I want to write that down and how does that mm. resonate how does that resonate in mm. your heart and mind David mm. Bedrick I just want to cry. I'm so touched by the statement. I can hardly think of the question, <laughs> that yeah. statement that you made. Yeah, the, yeah. the music, the music in the note, there in the musicality of the notes. I'm going to get it wrong. Between the notes. Between the notes, Between there lays my dignity. The notes. Wow. Are wow. Remembering and keep mentioning mm-hmm. and not being a victim, there lies my dignity. Thanks for re saying that. I'm going to listen to the podcast. I want to hear you say that over and over. I can tell <laughs> my next book, that could be the title, I think. You know? <laughs> That's an amazing thing. It's such, what you're bringing up has such a deep process in it. By a process, I mean a moving process. Because a person who is first becoming aware of having been injured, if a person's 23 years old and comes to me, I'm imagining, and says, I don't, I don't think anything's happened to me. and starts to reveal that. Or let's say it's a black woman who doesn't even know that she's experienced racism. I work with people like that. How could you not know? You cannot know because the culture so dismisses that that she just thinks I'm screwed up. Why do I hate myself so much? Exactly. She's never had somebody look, say, look in the mirror. What do you see? I see a broad nose. I see this color skin. I see wider hips. And I wish I wasn't like that. And no one has ever said to her, ouch, don't say that. Someone taught you to look at yourself that way. The witness. I'm bearing witness to the injury that's now internal to you. I see what you're saying to yourself when you see that in the mirror. So that's not happening. So if that person is fresh to waking up to that, then it's very important that person appreciates genuine victimization. Then I have to be used that word freely at that point. You have been victimized. I can't make victim into some kind of negative thing. Victimization really did happen. It's a genuine thing. You have been victimized. You were a victim of violence. I'm using that word like I was using the word Jew before because I'm trying to instill in their psyche. I saw a hurt. I'm not going to even let you think I shouldn't be a victim yet. No. no. Because now I'm dismissing the victimization. I'm blaming you for letting something happen. I can have to make sure that it doesn't happen. Now, as that process continues, and that person becomes more empowered around that event, they start feeling stronger around that event. I know I have been hurt. I know I have been injured. I know what the injuring person group value system looks like to me. Then that person starts becoming more powerful. They're starting to dance in, in those notes, like you're saying. Then that person can say, I have been victimized, but I also carry a certain amount of power. I even can victimize. I can damage another person. I know that. I remember a period in my life when I was working on my own power, and I would get into a conflict with someone, and I would say, if this goes further, I will probably hurt you with my words. I knew I could do that. I could fight back. In fact, I knew something. If I didn't say that, I would get set off, and I might do that. I might say something very hurtful to someone. So I'd say, so that's a person, now I'm a person at that moment moving out of that, I'm only victim, I'm both. You can hurt me, but I can injure you. I'm smart psychologically, I probably can find the hole, I'll probably reach for that, even without thinking, this is where we are right now. Anyway, that's an interesting, I'm thinking about that dance that you're saying, and that beauty, the dignity of that. Maya Angelou, I have a chapter about her, and um, so she was raped, I think she was six or seven. Yeah. And... Um, I was, I, last time I saw her, she was in her 70s, and she spoke about her rape. And some people saying, how come she's still speaking about her rape? Shouldn't she have gotten over that? So I'm, I'm exaggerating, right, that particular thing. That person's trying to dismiss that event. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't she get over that? I'm thinking, let's erase that event. 
a healed person, somebody would say, would not have to mention that anymore. Um, but I'm looking at the healing of a woman, of a black woman, of America, who says, I know who I am. I can talk about this with the dignity you're talking about. Yes, I was victimized. Yes, I have power. Yes, I can stand in front of thousands of people and talk about that unbowed. Anyway, that's to me would be the, the expression of the beauty you're talking about. I looked at her and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the capacity of a human being. That's the capacity of an American, no? Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I experienced this in my life in the sense that... Um, for a long time, um, I could not acknowledge that I'm a Jew. Mm-hmm. And as you know, I say Jew as opposed to Jewish because I truly believe it's a genetic and an epigenetic um, being, that it's my, my mm-hmm. genetic being. And I, I, I couldn't say that for a long time. And now I can say it because I know there's not a trace. There's knowledge, there's great knowledge and grief about the victimization mm-hmm. of my family. But mm-hmm. there's no victim in when I say those words. Amazing. I'm not looking for any kind of pity or freebie or mm-hmm. extra compassion. Mm. It's just who I am. Mm. How did you get there? <laughs> I'm asking you now. <laughs> How did you get there? <laughs> How did you get to that what place? A, what a beautiful question. I was The way I can tell it to you is what I was inspired. Uh, the other day a woman was asking me... Um, uh, should I forgive my mother? That's a big... But what she was saying is, should I love my mother unconditionally now that I'm 50-something years mm-hmm. old? And I was thinking while you were talking, um, my mother, uh, from her victimization, did a lot of very, very, very injuring, wounding, horrible things to me. So I was thinking, how did it happen, like you're asking? Well, I had to hate her until I could love myself. Mm -hmm. And then once I loved myself, and it took many, many years, Mm -hmm. then I could love her as well. Beautiful. And so the way I want to turn this back to you is, at this point, as an activist, activist, I am unable to have any love whatsoever for Bannon or Trump Mm -hmm. or or Tillerson, Mm -hmm. or any of these people. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I don't love myself? What Mm -hmm. is going on here? Mm -hmm. And what is the measure? Mm -hmm. For me, it's clear. I can see something maybe people won't be able to see in audio. I see you lean forward. I see your hands move in an energy, in a passion, in an intensity. And I see a woman ready to stand up. Her body would wants to go so forward. Her hands want to move in a certain energy, the music, the dance. It's not going to be only a, a, the gentle dance. It's going to have potency to it. Gentleness can have potency also. Mm, it's going to have a potency right. to it. So I think loving that woman, the one who, has, who shows me herself when she talks about it, means to say, go further with that. Take what you're now sensing and calling hatred and make the dance out of that. Make it even further. Amplify it. Make it more so, and it'll become beautiful. Beautiful in, in its power, beautiful in its resistance, beautiful in its I don't know what. It will unfold in the dance. And when that's loved, then the self-love will be there. Because I, I have to bear witness now. And if I bear witness to that and saying... It's in any way implying, let's minimize or dismiss or, you, or blame you. You could be causing harm, you, but you could be too much. You can't You bring some love to these people. Then I'm not looking at you. I'm not looking at a subject, a human being with her own experience, her own body telling me what's in her. I'm acting like that. I hadn't seen that. That would be to dismiss that. I'd bring potential. You may be, have strong enough to not let this in. I then bring a potential shame to that. If I said, can't you be more loving to them? And you took that in as, yeah, I guess I should be. 
and your voice started diminishing and your body sat back and your hands started moving the way they were. I think I just did a damage to a political agent just now. Mm -hmm. It's very, very Mm -hmm. crucial. I mean, you speak Mm -hmm. about Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. in your book so beautifully and, Mm and... is this what Martin Luther King was able to embody? Mm-hmm. The, 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 this, mm-hmm. this loving opposition. Yeah. I think Technatan as well. Yes, amazing man. A, a, mm-hmm. a fierce, mm-hmm. loving, fierce opposition. Yes. Can you speak about that? Yeah. Fierce opposition. Yeah. Martin Luther King has been... Um, whitened, what do you call it? Whitewashed is the word I want to use. So much so. So we, so we've, white America, I have to say it that way, has turned him into something more benign than he was. They've stripped the memory of him. That's a shaming of black culture to do that. I'm stripping him of the militancy of that particular human being and turning them into something else. So he looks like a softer, sweeter, turn the other cheek when you smack me kind of a guy. That's not how he was. But if I do that, I not only bring shame to the memory, but then I tell all black people, you should turn the other cheek. You shouldn't stand up with a fist and a black glove. When MLK um, did his dream speech, was that 63 I'm getting the date. I think it was 63. He said, I have a dream. Four years later, he gave another speech. He said, I once said I had a dream. Now I see it's a nightmare. That speech doesn't show up on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The nightmare. I see a nightmare. When he was down south and he started his nonviolent strategy, which I want to say something about the way that was nonviolent, When he started doing that, he had a kind of a Christian ethic. The notion was that if I turn the other cheek, you will notice. You'll go, oh my gosh, I just smacked you on the first cheek because I'm opening my heart to you. He then moved up north and then he met people who were openly racist, explicitly, directly racist. And he met them with that particular thing and people went, oh my gosh, some, I'm racist. Then he went up north and he tried the same thing. He became depressed. He became suicidal. How come? Because he met people who weren't openly racist. And what he met from them was people who were being nice, open. I'm being sarcastic, right? Mm -hmm. Friendly. I'm not a racist person. Mm -hmm. So now he wasn't meeting a racist with a heart behind that. He was reading a heart in the front, a heart, quote unquote, and a racist behind it. Now when I turn you the cheek, what do I see? I find that there's a racist back there. Shaming. This was so depressing to him. So he became much more militant over the years. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. I want to say one more thing about violence. Yes. Some people have this image of the turning the other cheek. Martin Luther King's nonviolence, I want to say this stronger than I usually do, was not nonviolent. He, he, made a space for violence to happen openly. People were set up intentionally. I don't mean set up in a negative way. He said, you, I'm going to train you to sit at the bar stool at the diner and have people spit in your face, punch you, and you're going to stay there. That's a violent scene. It's not, this is not a loving scene. There's violence. He knew he was putting people in the violent space. I just want to say that. So he was saying, how do you act in that moment? But he was... He was highlighting violence. He was bringing violence out of the shadow. So it's not just like, oh, how are you? I'm sweet. You're sweet. He was putting himself and other activists in the space of great violence to show it up. So we sometimes forget that, that aspect of it. And he died by the bullet. He died violently. violently. So there's not... There's violence all around yeah. that. I'm not putting down his strategy. I'm just saying yeah. we whiten it, whitewash it if we don't say violence is all around this particular thing. Yeah. Something came to me while you were talking. After 9 11, mm-hmm. ordinary people in this country felt entitled to practice verbal or physical violence on mm-hmm. on the other. And mm-hmm. then one could kind of understand it. Mm-hmm. 
Yet it seems like this entitlement to practice practice violence on many, many levels. Mm -hmm. This has become cultivated since Mm 9-11 to a place that's now extremely explosive. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Yes. You could say in the shadow, one thing in the shadow of America is great violence. In In the light, we're a good country, we're a moral country, etc., Yes, there's also that, right? So that that has to be said clearly. There's also great high moral action and inaction in the world. And then there's great violence. So if we highlight the sort of where the exceptional good people, then there's going to be violence going to be pushed down into the shadows where it can't be seen in the light. It gets seen on the street. It gets seen in the needle in the arm on the street, but not the pharmaceutical... Uh, bathroom <laughs> filled cabinet we're not seeing in other words we're not seeing the violence of the person in the in the suburban home with the drugs so we're not seeing we're seeing the violence projecting it onto the black community in the streets or in protests we're not seeing the violence that happened as you know so well you're saying in the home to girls boys both so there's so much violence that's then being in the shadow projected onto certain groups of people enacted onto the people who are most weak, and then erupting. So then how do we address that? What do we need to do about that? Somehow we need to start bearing witness to violence. That means in two ways. One, resisting violence that's being used against people with less power, resisting that. And then when we can, when it's safe, meaning there's no one smaller to be hurt, if there's a group of people here, if there's a person here who says, I hurt other people, and that, the people that person is hurting is not here, then I'll bear witness to that violence. Show me the violence. Bring it out all the way. Express it. Stand up. Show me how much power you really have that you don't know you have. Then I would try to lift that violence up in the scene where there's not a potential victim in that moment. Then I would bear witness that, to that particular violence in groups also. And I would say to even the the group of white men who had let's say have been have been violators even in front of another group i'd say can everybody hold for a a minute well i ask them to show me what's in them i'm not going to let them hurt you but i'm going to ask them to show me what's in them it's very relieving very important many black people will say somebody will say something gross racist and then somebody will say, that's too much. And many black people in that moment say, let them say it. We feel this all the time. Let them talk. We want to hear all the things they think. Because now we're bearing witness to that. I know, it's chilling, isn't it, to think that? It's yeah. chilling, and it's also mm. making me think about mm. this propaganda mm. that Trump got elected because he's saying the things that we think. How does those things rub against each other? Mm. How does those shadows create any light. Mm. The title for my next book. <laughs> how, do those, how do those shadows create any light? <laughs> Remember for the book. <laughs> you do this to me. You say these statements that make me forget the question because your languaging is so, is so wonderful. How do these shadows create any light? We need, in my view, we need enough People who can bear witness, hold the difficulty, the tension in a way that sees without shaming anybody. That doesn't mean not, re- that doesn't mean not resisting. That's different. Say it, yeah? say it. But somebody has to say, I see that. Somebody has to say to that person who wants to vote for Donald Trump and beat down everybody else. Somebody has to say to that person at some point, I see that. I want to know about that fist. I want to see the whole darn thing. And then I say to the people who they can hurt, please, again, please take a safe distance. If it's going to be traumatized to you, leave the room. Hold somebody's hand because I want to see what this person is made of. And when that power erupts fully, I let it blossom fully. That means I'm in a healing modality. I'm not on the street when that person's going to hurt someone. There I'm going to stop that person. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in a healing modality, then, I say, then that, that power blossoms. Then you see amazing things in that person. You see violence in their life that they didn't express. You see trauma in the background that hasn't, been, that hasn't come out in that person's life. And you see 
Often, this is a strange psychological leap, you see suicidality in that person. That person somehow wants to kill themselves, parts of themselves, if it shows up. Here's the caveat to what I'm saying. I'm not saying to people, please be kind and tell that person to show you more violence when they're hitting you <laughs> or hitting someone you love, right? That, 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 this has to be a, a healing environment that means you, have, you can bear witness. But, if you're, but you can do that, even if you're watching the police on the street detain a black youth. You can still do that. You can do various different things. You can stand there and say to the police, I see what you're doing. I'm not going to let you misuse that person. Dear black youth, do you know your constitutional rights? You can say that out loud right in front of that. I've done those kind of things. That would be one way. And I could also say, this is such a difficult, loaded scene. We all know that. I'll say that right out loud. We all know that. The police are in an impossible scene given a badge and a gun to deal with things that haven't been dealt with until this moment on the street. Other people have been subject to terrible violence. Oh my gosh, I feel for you. If that's a possible witnessing of the whole environment, that might lessen that environment. It might not. If that police officer says, get the bleep out of here, you're in my way, I might not be able to be as open-hearted to the whole scene. I might say, this is how it happens. <laughs> I wouldn't move. I would still report out loud, though, because I'm witnessing. This is how it happens. Now the witness can't be seen. Now the witness is asked to leave. Something can happen. This is danger. I would say that all out loud, even if I was the only one there. Let the spirit hear. Let the psyches hear. Let those two people dream about my voice that night. Mm -hmm. So a mm -hmm. part of me... Uh, And part of me is understanding this from my own experience and sensing that I've been this person many times, the mm -hmm. one who says, I see what's going on. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm here, I'm not leaving, and I'm seeing what's going on. And... Uh, I've been villainized so many times by the crowd mm -hmm. for being the person who says that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. can, you can, you, can you relate mm -hmm. to what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, And what can mm -hmm. we do about that? I mean, what can we do? This is, this is the thing, and this is the thing that that hurts me the most about the Holocaust. It's the thing that hurts me the most, is, the, is the, per, my perceived indifference of the crowd. Like the time that I was listening to women from Bosnia, I was in Brussels, and I was listening to a conference of women from Bosnia. And what the, what, the essence of what they were saying is nobody cares. We feel in Bosnia that nobody cares. Or the people in uh, the people in um, recently in um, in Syria, the people, nobody out there cares. Mm -hmm. But back mm -hmm. to the more mm -hmm. the smaller, the indifference of mm -hmm. the crowd. Yeah, yeah, it's such an important thing. In some way, we've been trained to see violence between two parties, two individuals or two groups. Group A hurts group B, or person A hurts group, hurts group B, person, person A hurts group yeah. person B. The greater long-term violence, the sustained violence, is that which is done by the crowd. So that means that instead of being focused on the fight between the two people, the two groups, our eyes need to start seeing what is everybody doing during that scene. That's a change in consciousness. We have to stop saying that person's an abuser only. Yeah, only. <laughs> we have to say that person's an abuser. But then we have to say, and look at what everybody does about that. That's the, that's, yes, the, that's, that's, the, that's the next step some people are doing. That's the next step in so much of this violence. Who is, who is noticing that? And what's the violence that's done? Again, going back to our earlier part of our interview, in the dismissal, the denial, the implied denial and not responding. If you're being hurt on the street and I don't do anything, there's an implied denial. 
you will still take in the witness. The witness of, did that really happen? Some people can't even believe that something happened until somebody tells them, even if they're physically hurt. Isn't that radical? Someone can get physically hurt, and not until they tell another person who gets it, who is physically, emotionally moved by that, do they believe their own story. That's how potent that is. So we have to spend much more time looking at how do we respond? How do we be witnesses to that particular kind of violence? That can happen at the moment. I'm here right now watching it. That can happen the next day when you tell me what happened yesterday. That can happen 100 years later when you tell me what happened. That can happen 200 years later. Here's a huge implication. So some people say, slavery is over. And then somebody might say, slavery had a big impact. There's still ways in which there's still Jim Crow laws enacted through the law enforcement system and the streets and gangs to prison pipeline, all those kind of things. Very, very important to be said. Here's the other aspect when you think of it. So that's true. That's a good counter argument. But when you think about the witness, then if I say, if I'm a black man saying, and saying something about race, and you say slavery is over, then the witness should say, slavery exists as soon as you say that. You just dismissed slavery. That's the injury. That's the witness aspect. You just wiped out slavery. You have just created a violent, racial, racist act that traumatizes the psyche, just like slavery did. Slavery is right here, right now, and somebody's saying it doesn't exist. It's today. Not just today, it's in that very moment of action. The witnessing itself does the damage at that moment. So you can say it's not a big deal. In my mind, you can't say it's not a big deal that Donald Trump left out the word Jew. You can't say that. To me, you can say that, of course. But I think, aha, that's the anti-Semitism. I no longer care about what Trump did at that moment. I care, but I care about how you respond the fact that he did that. That's the culture, that's the, the waking up we have to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somehow, this is, the, this is the response that comes to me. Much of this... Much of this apathy of the crowd could be about the fact that we... we we are not related to our ancestors. Mm. We don't care about our ancestors. Mm. That's deep. That's deep. When I was in my 20s, I never thought about anti-Semitism. When I was in my 30s, a black woman said, tell me about what it's like to be a Jew. And I was kind of saying, what do you mean? (laughs) She said, you won't be able to get very far in your personal development, David, unless you learn about what it means to be a Jew, the history of being Jewish. And I, she was very smart, and I trusted her. I thought she must be right, but I didn't get it. I didn't yeah. think, I understand exactly what you're saying. And I'm remembering now moments of that, waking up about that. And I was working for a while with a Swiss psychologist, Max Schupach, an amazing man. And I was telling him about the violence in my family my father was very rough with his fists and belts and in anger and would hurt. My older brother got it the worst. My mother got it if she got in the way. I was smaller and frightened. I was freaked out most of the time, so I didn't get the hands and the belt so much. And, um, and I remember uh, telling Mark Shupak about my father's violence, and he started getting teary. And um, I thought he was feeling for my pain. And he said, I can't only be on your side against your father yet. I'm getting there. I said, how come? And he said, I'm Swiss. He said, if it wasn't for me, maybe your father wouldn't have been that violent. We turned our backs. We took your money. We helped fund the Nazi military machine through our banking system. I was like, oh my gosh. That's amazing. That was, out of all the things I worked on around my personal abuse with my father, that was one of the most healing moments. We weren't working on what my father did. Somebody said, I'm part of your story. And I never thought before then, oh, I said, I would tell people, I lived in a violent family. I didn't say I lived in a violent Jewish family. 
Because if you pull the Jew out of the family, then you see a, uh, then social issues, Judaism in this case, it could have been a black family, a Muslim family, a gay family. Then the violence you think is just between my father and me. It's a, or family violence. You don't think this is part of a social system enacting itself. That's right. Here's a man disempowered, addressing his, his anti-Semitism in ways that are unconscious. That has to be dealt with. That doesn't give him an excuse to hurt me. That's not like that. But it has to be. But if you want to know that story these days, I would say you damn well better understand that's a Jewish story. If you don't see that as a Jewish story, you dismiss that, you cause more damage to that particular system. This happens all the time around abuse where people are not saying, tell me about the extended story, the ancestral story. That's part of what's happening there. The whole social issue gets put into the background. Gosh, with our gay sisters and brothers, all the violence that is experienced. And if, and if two women come in here who are lovers and talking about their conflict, I'm seeing two women lovers in a culture that's violent towards women being lovers. I have to see that. Now, maybe that's not where they want to go. That's fine. I won't go there. Right. But my mind's not going to erase that. I'm going to think this is part of the scene. I'm going to be thinking, is there a guy outside of the scene saying, I hate both of you. You shouldn't exist. And if there's a sense of that, I'll enact that. I'll say, you know, the two of you, you're having conflict and it's difficult and you're having a very difficult time being angry with each other. Can I just point out the world you live in and I'll stand up and I'll say, and I'm going to say, please hold on to each other. I want to enact something. And I'll start saying, you two don't belong together. This is disgusting. I don't even want to say that on air. I'll start saying things out loud that I know is in the culture. And I'm going to see if that brings them closer together. Because that violence is around them. If it's not seen and not witnessed, now it's going to happen between the two of us. That doesn't mean they can't have conflicts with each other. People should have conflicts with each other. But for me not to catch that particular part, shames. It says, this is about your relationship psychology. This is about your mother and your father and whatever. And this is not about a world that you're living in. I erase that. That brings shame to that conflict as opposed to loving witness to that conflict. I see your eyes are moved by that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I love hmm. this conversation. Hmm. And uh, coming around here, um, I'll say, if you, if you can't meet David in person, <laughs> which is a real um, mm-hmm. deep gift. Read Revisioning Activism by David Bedrick. And uh, I'm going to do a very Hollywood thing here. (laughs) I am going to go for a happy ending. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) What what gives you the life force to write these, these books, to see clients, mm-hmm. and to show up mm-hmm. for us activists in the way that you do. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, one part of me would tell my own violent story, but I don't only want to do that <laughs> because that's, that's not this our... This is the happy ending. Yeah, because it's a happy ending, <laughs> and there should be a happy ending. <laughs> so you're making me reach because I usually think, oh, I know my story, I know what the violence in my family and how that grew this thing in me. But then, but, what's, but what else? What else? What else did that? You're making me think of two things. One, when I was, I did work with a conflict in Poland and we brought together Germans and Jews and Poles and Russians and talked about World War II history. And after that, I went to the Jewish cemetery in Warsaw. And it's an amazing place. 250,000 gravestones that have been mostly untouched for like 50 years. There are gravestones mostly from, from before the Holocaust. It's just that 300,000 Jews were no longer living in Warsaw. And nobody took care of the cemetery, so it's all grown over. It's quite, it's quite beautiful in ways. Trees wrapping themselves around gravestones, etc. And I went there, and I sat down, leaning against a gravestone, and I instantly fell asleep. <laughs> That's what happens for me. And I woke up, and I heard a voice that said, Live. Don't die. <laughs> 
didn't say that part. <laughs> Don't die. Live. So something you're thinking about the ancestry. And then I have to say, I've had such great teachers in my life. I've always had teachers for some reason. I've always been drawn to, I call elders. That means somebody who knows something more. It could be a three-year-old. Somebody who knows something more than me or is a step ahead in some way. And I've had such great teachers who have believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself. Sometimes for 20 years, they believe in me. You know, I remember Arnie Mandel said to me, one of my teachers, he's an amazing man, and he said to me when I first went to see him, which I think was 1993, he said, David, you need to write. He told me that for 20 years before I can write a book. <laughs> How come he kept saying that, you know? <laughs> anyway, so I think that's, a, that's an amazing thing. It's a gift, a happy thing for me to have people like that who who did see me, who saw my gift and said, I see you're an amazing human being. I'm invested in that flowering. Mm-hmm. Joanna, it's amazing sitting with you. It's amazing sitting with you. Wonderful. It's the best interview ever. Oh, <laughs> it is. When we're sitting here leaning into each other and the dialogue is so alive, it makes it easy for me because I'm not thinking of what to say. I'm just in the... My fists are going back and forth, and they're feeling the back and forth energy of the of the dialogue. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.